If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2 as we offer some insights into our culture and into the changing reality of evangelicalism today in the context of destructive heresies, trying to learn and equip ourselves for the battle that we find ourselves in for the very heart and soul of the gospel. The songs that uh, we sang this morning are so appropriate to the battle that we find ourselves in, and there's a weightiness that I feel to this battle, and in particular, what's happening to the church, and that weightiness is sometimes challenged by some who think that uh, none of these things really matter when it comes to Christianity and reaching people for Christ. And I'm here to tell you it does matter. It all matters. And I will show you how the gospel has become unraveled and, and redefined in some very dangerous, dangerous ways, even within the ranks of evangelicalism today. And to not address these issues means that we will allow the gospel to be hijacked by those who claim to be evangelicals so that the gospel becomes something that it is simply not. And when the gospel loses its power, there is no hope of salvation for the gospel is the power of God to salvation to all who believe. The gospel matters. It matters in deep and significant ways, not just in our culture, but in the Christian church, and we will address some of these things this morning. Before we do so, just a couple of announcements. I apologize for this, but uh, these are important nonetheless. The Aligned ABF Sunday School uh, is designed for post-high school students and above, and the Aligned Ministry is re-engaging over this last week and now this week, and they're re-engaging with a primary focus on the recruitment of, of young adults between the ages of 18 and 22. We all know the church statistics and the loss of a generation of young people who get engaged in higher education and walk away from the church, and our line program is to engage those individuals and encourage them to live their lives upon Christ and the principles of God's Word. They're relaunching that ministry in person over the next couple of weeks, and they will be studying the importance of fellowship amongst people their age and around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as they begin this re-engagement phase, um, we need to pray for them. This is the generation in peril. This is the generation who's daunted by the questions and the challenges of the day this is a generation that will find themselves at times standing all alone in a secular school or job or some other situation, and they need the support of the body of Christ, and, and we're hoping that this Align ministry during the Sunday school hour will meet some of those challenges. I would offer special thanks to Alex and Kylie Dean, who had been in charge of this program pre-COVID and now are trying to re-engage this ministry post COVID, and as the pastor here, I would encourage you, if you fit that age demographic, if you are 
out of high school and looking for a place where you fit or somehow you can be ministered to, I want to really encourage you to stay after the morning worship and find your way to the room just to the right of the worship, or excuse me, the chapel. So right behind the worship center is the chapel, and just to the right of that is the Align group. They'll be meeting there this morning. I want to encourage you to give that uh, some attention this morning. They'll meet you. They'll greet you. They'll let you know what we're trying to accomplish in that Align Sunday School Hour, ABF, and I pray that it would meet a particular need in your life as you deal with the daunting challenges of the age. Second announcement pertains to next Sunday. I already told you that next Sunday is our celebration banquet, and you cannot leave here and find any restaurant in the area that will provide a better meal than what we will provide for you for free, all right? So that's just behind me and the gymnasium, but you need to sign up for that. And you'll find those sign-ups at the various welcome centers, and uh, uh, it's been a couple of years since we've done this, and now we're going to re-engage with this almost annual celebration banquet, and we encourage you to consider sticking around for that. If you're new to the ministry, this is a great place for you to get to know somebody, because uh, you'll be seated with, I hope, uh, someone from the church and ministry who's been here a while, and uh, we'd love to get to know your name and to uh, partake of this celebration feast with you. So, I encourage you to sign up before you leave. That being said, a very few times here at First Baptist do we spend time talking about money. But every year in November, or almost every year in November, we have a celebration offering on the same day as our celebration banquet that is, addresses uh, some of the current and contemporary needs in ministry and uh, some uh, objectives and, and potential future ministry for First Baptist Church moving forward. We ask you to give sacrificially. I don't even know what that means, but we'll leave it up to you and God to, to lead you in the right direction for that. But we want you to know what the initiatives are that, that we're going to be using these funds for this year. First, this will be the last year, we believe, in which we will use a good portion of this offering as COVID relief for various local church ministries and Christian ministries that were severely impacted by COVID-19. As you know, last year, through your gracious and, and generous giving, we were able to give pretty substantial gifts to two local churches, except excuse me, three local churches who all lost pastoral leadership to the COVID epidemic. And we were able to come alongside of those churches as they're searching for replacements in ministry and help sustain them. And uh, one of those churches stays in contact with us, and, and they're very close to bring in an interim or perhaps have a candidate for pastor. And you made that possible. We want to thank you for that. But we are aware of at least one other church right now who was in some serious need and suffered a similar kind of loss during this COVID pandemic. So a part of this offering, a good portion, will go to COVID relief matters. Uh, secondly, we're going to provide a, a monetary gift from these funds for local church, Christian ministry, and pastors' legal funds. In other words, uh, we are in a litigious society. And since the COVID shutdowns, many local churches have felt the pinch of having to file suit to stay open, to file suit to protect themselves as an entity from some of what I perceive to be government overreach 
in this COVID situation. Some of us think that it's really not a problem here, and I'm here to tell you you're wrong. Our neighbors to the north know that this is a real big problem. We know that in California there were a number of suits. What you might not know that is in New York State, there were several churches who filed suit against the state for some of the draconian rules and requirements that they placed on the church that, that kept the church from meeting and impacted their ministry in, in, in pretty significant and in substantial ways. We want to make a particular gift or two to these not-for-profit legal aid organizations that specifically exist to come alongside church ministries and uh, file those suits and uh, stand with the church on a legal basis uh, pro bono to protect the church from government overreach. If you don't think this is a necessary and worthy goal, I would suggest that maybe you've not been paying attention. There's a target on those who stand for truth today, and it's coming to a place near us. Uh, Maybe think of it this way, maybe, just maybe, some of the funds that you offer in the celebration offering would come to my legal aid and defense someday as I preach the gospel without compromise and take a stand on social issues that is distinctly biblical. I don't know what the end of all this is going to be, but we want to be prepared for that end and fighting the good fight. So there's COVID relief, there is this uh, legal aid fund, and finally, we want to enhance our online presence. What some of you don't know or maybe aren't aware of is that in large part, we still have hundreds upon hundreds of people on various platforms that join us every Sunday morning that aren't currently with us here in the building. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of them. We would like to to be creative and and have the funding to start to minister to them, not just in a televised hour or not in some um, audio presence, but, but how can we engage these people, reach out to them, have a role in their life, share with them the gospel, and provide other opportunities for them that they don't have right now because they're not a part or involved in a local church ministry. There's a reason that God has given us this audience, and for a couple of years now, I'm trying to figure out what can we do to minister to them beyond this hour, hour and a half on a Sunday morning. We want to use some of these funds to engage them on on a deeply personal spiritual level aside from this, this hour of worship and the communication of truth. I sense that this is the new normal moving forward, and I don't, I don't know where this takes us. If you are with us online, though, I want to encourage you, you need to be a part of a local church ministry. The body needs to be together. Just as our recent high school graduates and and young people need to be fellowshipping with other Christians, we want that for you. And there are certain things that an online presence simply can't do. So for all of us, that is and will entail our celebration offering for the coming year. When that offering comes in, we will report to you in the next week what exactly or where those funds will be allotted and uh, how we're going to engage this, this new normal in our culture today. Today I want to talk to you about destructive heresies and remind you that there is a new normal today. The ch- songs, again, that we, we sang are so relevant, at least to me this morning. Because the church needs to rise up and meet the challenges of the day. 
They might be new and different, maybe more caustic and costly, but the church needs to stand in the gap and meet these needs and recognize that it's not I or you or us, but Christ through us that will sustain us in these times. And I need you to pray for me as the leader of this ministry because I find myself at times swimming upstream of this culture and fighting the good fight even with resistance within the ranks of file of those in church and in churches. And I'm waiting for strength and stamina to continue to fight this good fight because it's not over until we see our Savior face to face. The prospects of things getting easier simply don't exist in our culture today. What are we going to do about that? Well, Peter attempted to do something about that. This was very much the situation in the Greco-Roman Empire and in Asia Minor, where Peter writes in his second epistle to those who had faced persecution and those who were facing twisted truth and destructive heresies. And he's writing to these Christians to remind them that they need to stay faithful to the truth. And being faithful to the truth means addressing those critical issues and the culture and society that are so, so prevalent in the political landscape, the educational landscape, and the social fiber of the Western civilization. I find it really interesting as I reflected upon these last elections, and now all of a sudden we've transitioned to the midterm elections of 2022, where the left and the world, and unfortunately even people within the church, have told us that it's all about identity politics and the race card, and they've told us that somehow we, being simply who we are in existence, are part of the big problem in the culture when we raise our objection to that, the government doesn't take kindly to that. Let me give you just a couple of examples. And you say, why do you have to talk about these, Pastor Jim? Well, pay attention, I'll tell you, all right? But you've got to wait till the end. We're going to make application to all of this. The Virginia governor race, Terry McCall of the Democratic candidate, said out loud what the Democrat party was thinking the whole time. Parents are no longer responsible for raising their children. It is the government that will decide what your children are taught and how they shall live. They ought to put a shudder in every single one of you. You ought to be concerned about that. So concerned that after this group of parents in Loudoun County in Virginia raised their voices and challenged the school board, the National Association of School Boards, and colluded, how about that for a word, with the White House so that the Department of Justice would turn those parents into terrorists, and the Department of Justice would start to, to investigate these parents for saying, hey, wait a second, we're the parents here. That's a problem. We find most recently in a Democratic uh, advertisement in the race for the Senate in Arizona, that it was identified that single white men are the greatest 
domestic terrorist group in the United States today. What? What? How did this happen? Mayor Pete Buttigieg, currently the Secretary of Transportation, says even our roads are racist. Our bridges are racist. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi in the recent summit in Glasgow said climate change is misogynistic and women suffer more than any other people group in the culture at large. My question is, where is this all coming from, and could that truly be true? I'm not going to change the hearts and minds of politicians and the culture today, but what I'm concerned about is there used to be some distance between the drift in the culture and the drift in the church. But that distance and has been experiencing a closure in that gap between what the world believes and what the church believes. Now it's no longer 20 years or 10 years or even five years. It seems like the church almost immediately adopts the mantra of the culture. And what we're hearing in churches today is that the gospel is somehow misogynistic. It's somehow patriarchal. What we hear today is the church itself is a racist organization what we hear today is that the, the issue of sex and gender is looked upon in a very antiquated way by the church, and, and they are the obstacle to growth and fulfillment in the culture today. And I find myself saying, wait a second, not only am I hearing these things on the television, I'm hearing these things coming from what was once considered evangelicalism surrounding the gospel. What went wrong? Why are these the issues of the day, and why does it matter? I would propose to you that that's exactly what Peter is addressing in the context of a church in a culture that was facing some of these grave challenges like our culture is facing today. We began looking at this last week with, with a quote from R.C. Sproul where he said, we are living in perhaps the most anti-intellectual period in the history of Christendom. Not anti-academic or anti-scientific, but anti-mind. He goes on to write, and this is in 2011, I doubt that there has ever been a time in church history when professing Christians have been less concerned about doctrine than they are in our day. We hear almost daily that doctrine doesn't matter, that Christianity is a relationship, not a creed. Ring a bell to anybody? I was recently in a bookstore going through the Christian section looking for a book to read because I'm a voracious reader and I'd read everything I'd taken on this trip. And I went back to my wife and said, it's all endless dribble. It's, it's worthless. How, how, did we even, how did we even get here? That's what Sproul was talking about as he wrote this commentary. Sproul was talking about this culture in the church that, that wants Jesus, but not so much doctrine. He goes on to state that there is not simply indifference toward doctrine, but even outright hostility, which is exceedingly dangerous and lamentable. The truth of the matter is there's this mantra that if we get the gospel right, nothing else matters. But what does it mean to get the gospel right? And what are those things that matter in the context of the gospel? What is it that enters into the church from the culture that undermines that gospel? 
I suggest to you this morning it's this contemporary wave of, of justice that touches almost every part of our life and puts us on the wrong side of history. Don't you love that phrase? How can we be on the wrong side of history when it's not history yet, when we don't know the outcome of all of these changes that are taking place in our culture today? Well, as Peter addresses this, he, he draws our attention, first of all, that he is speaking not just to the culture, but he's speaking to the church that resides in that culture. He says in verse 1 of his letter, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, listen to this, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. For all of you who know Him, for all of you who are righteous because of Him, for all of you who are called to live for Him, He's saying, I'm praying for God's grace and peace that it would be multiplied to you and that you would have the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. Knowledge matters. In fact, he spends a significant amount of time using that word know and knowledge over and over and over in the text. He is emphasizing the mind when in fact Sproul is lamenting the absence of the mind in contemporary Christianity. So what is it that Peter is driving home? What does it mean for us? I'm glad you asked. Let's pray and jump into the text. Father, thank You. There is a place that we can go where nothing changes, a place that we can go that takes nonsense and gibberish, gives us transcendent truth, a place that we can go that assists us in discerning right from almost right, a place that we can go and always count on is true truth. As Peter writes, beleaguered church and believers in Asia Minor who were facing these destructive heresies and the undermining of truth within their ranks, not just in the culture, I pray that as we as we learn from that, we'd apply some of these things to our culture today, and that you would find us as a church rising up, that you'd give us as a church the understanding that as weary as we might get, we cannot do this without the strength of our Savior. And we're reminded in our singing, we're in desperate need for you to hear us and answer our cries and Give us hope in a seemingly hopeless age as we wait for You. Such parallels and similarities to the group that Peter was writing to in the church today give us grace to understand and wisdom to apply. May You receive all the praise and the honor and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter will spend a substantial amount of time in chapter 2 talking about very negative things. But until we get there, I want you to note that Peter talked about some very positive things as he started this letter. Remember, he's talking to Christians, and he says to us in 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 8, His divine power has granted to us, all of those rescued 
in the gospel of Jesus Christ things that pertain to life and godliness, how to live for God in this life and how to address every aspect of life from that godliness through a knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. When the world gets greater and greater corrupted, there is this sinful desire to go the way of the world, and Peter said, God has given us everything that we need not to go that way. He has provided a path for us. He has given us great and precious promises for His own glory and excellence so that we can escape the corruption that is in the world and its sinful desires. So, Peter calls on those people in verse 5 to say, for this reason then make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and with virtue knowledge and with knowledge self-control, and self-control steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. God has given you everything that you need. You need to be growing in grace and in knowledge as he goes through this process of growth that begins with the intellect and and goes to every aspect of life. And he says that's where we're effective and fruitful because of our knowledge of our Lord. But the failure of knowledge and the engagement of the mind makes you ineffective and unfruitful. Verse 9, and whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. You cannot see the very things that are in front of you having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins, having forgotten his place in Christ and this great and precious salvation that makes us different, that separates us from the world, that makes us apart from that world, and that gives us the ability to sort through what's happening in the world and the church and get it straight. So, Peter gives this promise to those beleaguered Christians in Asia Minor, beginning in verse 12 of Second Peter 1. Therefore, to keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful, to enhance your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that you don't forget the things that you've been taught and the things you've been rescued from, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I'm not doubting your salvation and the genuine faith that you have in Christ, but you need to be reminded of certain things. Peter says, I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of remembrance. Peter says, for the rest of my life, I'm going to tell you that I told you and I'm going to tell you again. I'm going to stir up your mind. I'm going to remind you and help you to sort all of this stuff out since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. That is a haunting statement. Peter says, I know the peril putting you in remembrance. I know the peril of standing against the culture. I know the peril of calling out falsehood and speaking the truth. I I know the consequences of stirring you up to remembrance and and, and leading the army of God in the charge against the culture. 
and I know that eventually it will lead to my death. Indeed, Peter was martyred for his faith and his faithfulness. So he says to these people, until my last breath, I'm going to remind you, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Even when I'm gone, you won't be able to forget me. You have these words running through your mind. Even when I'm gone, I hope that you understand that the first line of defense is take your Bibles and turn to please. That's what Peter is saying in the text. And as he calls us to remembrance, he points out that the way he's going to do that is draw their attention to the Scripture. And from verses 16 through 21, in the context of 1 Peter, he said, I'm calling you away from your emotions and away from your experiences and away from what you think by way of emotion, and I'm calling you back to a truth that is more precious and promising and important than any other thing under heaven, because Scripture comes not from someone's own interpretation. But men spoke from God. You'll never be able to understand error. You'll never be able to stand against these destructive heresies. You will never be able to defeat these false teachers unless you know the truth. And what is that truth? It is not in what Peter said. It is what Peter directed them to. The authority of the pulpit is not in the man. The authority of the pulpit is in the Word. You follow me? Let me say it again. The authority of the pulpit is not in the man. The authority of the pulpit is in the Word. And if the man in the pulpit isn't in the Word, he has no such authority. Zero. It's not a church. It's not a worship service. There is no authority other than thus saith the Lord. The man in the pulpit needs to connect what the Lord said the things we face on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday and on Thursday and why it matters and always matters in the context of culture. So Peter says in chapter 2, after preparing us for this battle, but false prophets also arose among the people drawing us back into the New Testament and reminding us that even in Israel, There were false prophets who brought in destructive heresies and lies that had dire consequences for the nation of Israel, sometimes in the midst of God's grace, but oftentimes in the midst of God's wrath because they followed these destructive heresies. He said, just as that happened to the nation of Israel, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies heresies. We told you last week that the greatest threat to the church is not from the outside, it is from the inside. And he's warning us that inside of the church there will be false teachers who will secretly bring in, who will smuggle in, who will have the gift of oratory, who will be able to convince you of things that are not contained in the Scripture, and these are destructive heresies. They're not neutral. They're not harmless. They're pernicious lies. 
that undermine the gospel and the faith, and you need to be able to tell the difference between those two things. And these lies will even deny the master who bought them. They will even deny the redemption that is found in Christ alone, believing and teaching that somehow the culture and the church can be rescued not by the gospel of Jesus Christ, but by something different than the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, watch out for them. They're going to bring them these destructive heresies, and they will bring upon themselves swift destruction. They're going to be shocked. They stand before the throne of God say, we prophesied in your name. We did miracles in your name. We gave money in your name. We went to church in your name. And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. They'll be shocked. But their destruction is swift. Alarmingly, verse 2, many will follow their sensuality, their fleshly ways, their emotions and experiences as opposed to true truth. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. It will come under attack. It will be denied. There will be consequences for all of this. This word sensuality means that they will bring in sexual debaucheries and immorality. They will invert God's plan for sex and gender. They will be hardened in their sexual immorality, believing them to be right and the Bible wrong, God wrong. And it's because of them that true truth will come under disrepute in that culture. But alarmingly, he's not talking about the culture. He's talking about the church. He's talking about when Christians gather together and blaspheme the truth. He says, in their greed… For selfish gain at your expense, they will exploit you with false words. They will take advantage of you. They will win you over to them. But their condemnation from long ago is not idle. There are a couple of things implied with that phrase. They're accumulating the wrath of God. Now listen carefully. We shouldn't applaud that. We should not applaud that they're accumulating the wrath of God. We must see them as our field of mission. We must see them as the redeemable creatures created in the image of God, and we must speak to them the words of truth. And the words of truth are centered on the person of Jesus, for He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes unto the Father except by that same Jesus Christ. Their destruction is not asleep. In a sense, an encouraging word, God knows what's going on. We win, a better day is coming. The church can't sequester itself and hide away and never engage that culture if, in fact, we believe that every single soul matters. Church just can't hide away and say, well, that's just them. May the wrath of God come upon them if we believe 
that every soul has intrinsic worth, value, and dignity. We must fight the good fight and tell them the truth. For God is not willing that any should perish, but all come to eternal life in Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that everyone will come, but everyone must be called. There's a day of judgment and destruction coming. The church, instead of standing strong in the midst of it, as Peter declares, and as we've seen in our culture today, the church seems to be pulled more towards the culture than the culture pulled toward the truth. Mark Gailey used to be one of the chief editors for Christianity Today, started a firestorm in response to another article recently, happened early in October talking about uh, the, the need for affirmation from the intellectual elites of the times. He said that Christian writers are writing to somehow appease the world and be accepted by the world, and he said that quest for acceptance leads to a combination dressed as religious conviction. It is a compromise, and we must be leading the way, not seeking their acclamation. And he says, Why? Because they're using them, meaning you, to enhance their own status. Isn't exactly what Peter just said? (laughs) They're going to exploit you. They're going to get you to think their way, but there is no gain or reward for that. So, Galley writes, evangelical religion has become theologically pluralistic and incoherent as such. It is too subject to the changing winds of secularism to stand erect in the hurricanes of our time. We need to set apart this capitulation and appeasement and stand firm in the truth. For what is happening is a neo-pagan resurgence. And a neo-pagan resurgence is a theological proposition. They are redefining God. They are redefining truth. They are redefining true truth. They are making it sensual and emotional and experiential instead of transcendent, outside of the bounds of time, true for all people at all times. But it is a theological proposition. Paganism was a person who worshiped many gods or goddesses, but it was tied to the earth and creation and nature, had it nothing to do with a transcendent God. And we live in a pagan culture that worships the creation more than the creator of all things. We are living in a Romans 1 kind of era today. It is a neo-paganism that denies the monotheism of Christianity and Judaism and Islam and preaches a gospel that is solely focused on the earth with no transcendent truth and no transcendent God, only that which we see and experience. And in this neo-paganism, they have captured the hearts and the minds of the culture, but I will show you they have also captured the hearts and the minds of some who claim the name of Christ and who have indeed followed their sensuality and blasphemed the truth. Owen Strahan, in his text, Reenchanting Humanity, says, in the 21st century, we've witnessed the rise of ideology that seeks to replace divine order with a counterfeit, with what we call neo-paganism. 
This movement spiritualizes sexuality in a design-denying way while rendering sexual practice nothing more than a momentary phenomenon. Sex is both everything and nothing all at once. If we were to define these destructive heresies that are so prevalent in the world and in the culture and are being adopted in the church today, it would simplify it to simply say that the church is capitulating and accommodating when it comes to sex and gender, when it comes to race, when it comes to societal roles, when it comes to the nuclear family, when it comes to traditional morality and law and order, and is seen in alarming ways. Mark Silk, a professor of religion and public life at Trinity College, recently opined, that the Christian tradition, including the very language of Holy Scripture, is misogynistic and deeply problematic. It even takes aim at a title of God, God the Father, and says that's deeply misogynistic and troubling. There are agencies in evangelicalism today that are trying to introduce neutral pronouns into the historic creeds of the faith and into the most recent translations of Scripture. But I would have you to know beyond any shadow of a doubt that the truth of the Holy Scripture and the language of Scripture is unquestionably gendered, unquestionably gendered. You cannot do away with it. And if you do away with it, you undermine the Scripture. And I would suggest that what is happening in our culture is that by simply asserting something, we believe that it makes it so. But simple assertion doesn't make anything so. We have to think. We have to engage the mind. And that's what Peter is calling upon these believers to do as these false prophets have come in and distorted the truth within the context of the Scripture and our age, convincing the the church to become woke in sex and gender and race and you name it. And yet, biblical Christianity and ideological social justice are incompatible worldviews. Their epistemology is different than ours. They believe that truth is derived from experience and emotion, and we believe that truth comes from the truth giver, and there is true truth only in the person of Jesus Christ and in the pages of Scripture. You can't have it both ways. There is this ideological, incompatible, different worldview when it comes to human nature. We believe that men are broken, separated from God, and vessels of wrath fit for destruction. They believe that man somehow is, is redeemable through social agency and change. They believe that they are identified by their gender, by their sexual preference, by their race, by their ethnicity, by whatever else they want to fill in, we are identified as men and women created in the image of God. And when that reality is erased, the depravity of the human mind wreaks havoc not just in a culture, but even within the church. The deacons have been moving through a tax the gathering storm by Albert Moeller, looking at some of the challenges the church faces and applying it to here. Moeller says, our society is not drifting leftward, it's being driven leftward. Our responsibility is to think clearly and critically about how our culture is being influenced 
what this means for Christians seeking to live faithfully in a secular age. We have to engage the culture, Carl Truman warns, because the whole culture has been politicized. It means we must delve in that political arena. But to engage the culture without discernment leads to a captivity, and the church becomes more like the culture than it does the church. And that is the problem in our culture. That is the very thing that Peter is warning about in the text. Paul writes to the church at Colossae and says, Therefore, as you received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive. By philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, and according to the elemental, using Peter's language, sensual spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. It is exactly what Peter is addressing. It's exactly where we find ourselves in the culture today. This whole social justice mantra presents this false dichotomy in the church that says, if you're not for us, you're against us. No. Where social justice prevails, it must be addressed. There are problems historically and even in contemporary world with inequalities and injustice. But to make everything about inequality and injustice doesn't do justice to the truth, doesn't do justice to the gospel, and it focuses all of our focus on things here and now rather than those things that are eternal and to come. Jesus indeed is coming again. And there will be swift destruction and accountability, not just for the world, but for those who claim the name of Christ. Right about now, some people are probably turning me off, and some people in the room are getting irritated. You're saying, so you're not for social justice? Didn't you just hear me? Of course I am, but not everything is social justice. And we make everything under the sun right there's still an army of humanity marching to hell. Social justice doesn't redeem a culture. Only Jesus Christ can do that. Do you believe that? What happens when we put sex and gender and race and environmental justice and all of these justices ahead of the gospel in evangelicalism, we lose the gospel let me give you quickly as we wrap up a number of reasons why. Ideological social justice does not bring unity or hope. It breeds dissension, division, and destruction. And rather than bringing justice for all, it simply inverts the injustice. Thereby, true justice is the middle-aged white male is the real terrorist in the culture. It doesn't fix anything. It just inverts the same problem from a different direction, and there's no hope in it. And in the church today, there is dissension and division and destruction over race and over gender and over family and over roles, and we must get back to the Bible. We must get back to the language of the Scripture, and we must allow that Scripture to define our positions on these critical issues of the day. Ideological social justice rejects the intrinsic worth, value, and dignity of every human being. 
It isn't that you all matter because you're created in the image of God. It is that some matter more than others because of your sex and because of your gender and because of your ethnicity and because of your race. And you can shuffle the cards all you want. It is a denial of the worth, value, and dignity of every single created being. And the church must see beyond those distinctions and see everyone as a created entity of God that he said was very good, but horribly broken. We must never look down at any human being, for they are created in the image of God, and they matter. That's not enough for the social justice warriors in the church today. It's only enough if some matter more than others, but that undermines the gospel. That buries the truth. That robs people of their intrinsic created essence and makes it all about sex and gender and race and color and creed and ethnicity. Ideological social justice rejects, rejects the unique created order and identity of every human being, regardless of race, ethnicity, gender, creed, or color. In the church today, there's a group of evangelicals, really big names, saying there are no distinctions between men and women. Paul, when he said husbands are the head of the family and the wife, was wrong. He didn't understand. He wasn't enlightened. He didn't, he didn't grasp the truth. He got it all wrong, in essence, they're telling us today. Ideological social justice, in the end, alters the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why is there such this huge divide in evangelicalism today where we're fighting over things that we never fought about before? Why is there this conflict within the church over sex and gender and, and race and, and, and ideology? Because we have forgotten who we are. We have forgotten the salvation and its impact in our life. We're the very people that Peter writes to right here in this text by saying many will follow their sensuality. Don't let it be you, Peter said. Get back to the Word and get back to the truth, for it is the truth that sets you free. And yes, you are distinctly male and female. You are created for a purpose, and you were designed for a role, and you must fulfill and play that role to find the ultimate satisfaction in life. That's what the gospel teaches us. And we wonder, how in the world has this become such a problem? And it reminded me of the Virginia election again. And Terry McAuliffe said out loud what everyone else was thinking. A recent podcast out of England called Unbelievable. Justin Briarly had on Owen Strahan, an evangelical theologian, and another individual who was a pastor, Reverend Jermaine Marshall, who wrote a book called Christianity Corrupted, in which he sees all of Christianity as being racist in nature. And there was a debate, and at the end of this hour and 30-minute debate, something that w w was said out loud that crystallized the whole thing. Reverend Jermaine Marshall said that the Reformation, 1517, 
was a theological scandal. He said it was such a theological scandal that it did not recover the gospel of Jesus Christ. It recovered Pauline theology. He went on to say, I look at Pauline theology with a hermeneutic of suspicion. I love Jesus. I just tolerate Paul. I don't believe what he says. Now, listen carefully. If you missed everything else, look up here. That's what was happening to the people that Peter was writing to. And here's what was happening. It is a pagan theological proposition that disregards the transcendent morality of God. It's a pagan disposition that says Paul was wrong, which is a direct attack on the inerrancy and the inspiration and the infallibility of Scripture. You can't trust the Bible. You follow me? It is a misunderstanding of the Reformation from the standpoint of it wasn't a rescue of Pauline theology, it was a rescue of, and let's tie the passage together, men spoke from God. This wasn't Pauline theology. This was Paul instructing the church and the theology of God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and it's all true. And if some of it's true, none of it's true. But if it's all true, it's all true. And all I want to… We're debating people who have bought into destructive heresies, and there's no common ground. The true Reformation brought the church back to Scripture. The true Reformation brought people back to Christ. The true Reformation brought people back to the gospel, and it wasn't a social gospel. It was a gospel that said you are dead in your trespasses and sin, and you can only be made alive through Jesus Christ. It is the essence of the gospel. But you dismiss all of that in lofty theological terms as irreverent. What you have is the evangelicalism of our day. Is there gut-wrenching malevolence when it comes to discrimination with color and gender? Yes. Social justice isn't the answer. Those problems exist because we have a human problem, and that human problem is sin. There's only one way to deal with sin. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you change that gospel, like Reverend Jeremiah changed that gospel, there is no hope. Peter says they're here. They're among us, and many are going to listen to them. Be different. They're destructive heresies. They will undermine the truth. They will pave the path of destruction that leads to hell. Know this first. Verse 19, 1 Peter. We have something more sure, a prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. Boy, do we need a lamp today. 
until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart until you see him. Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, no matter how intelligent they are. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit, and I would add, no matter what the cost. May God find that faithful remnant here at First Baptist Church in Johnson City, for we are living in an age of destructive heresy. And somebody has to stand up for the truth. May it be the church of God as it arises and unashamedly holds to the truth, delivered to the saints once for all, never changing until we hear the sound of the trumpet, lest you be discouraged today. We know the end of the story, and the day might be darkening, but we win. God wins. The crooked will be set straight again, but we must stay faithful until that day. Regardless of the cost, making me more and more uneasy. Because I'll be one of those who will pay the price. May God find me faithful as I wait for Him, knowing that Jesus is coming again and everything's going to be Okay, will you fight the good fight with me? Father, thank you. Thank you that the Scripture is so alive. It never loses its power or direction. It never ceases to inform us. It, it always lights the way in the path of darkness. And just as Peter was addressing these things in his time, nothing has changed. So as he provides that instruction to those in Asia Minor who are living with these destructive heresies, may we learn from that instruction and engage these destructive heresies that change the gospel and offer no hope. Prepare us to be misunderstood. Prepare us for our words to be twisted. Find us faithful to our last breath on this earth, and through the gospel of Jesus Christ, may you make all things new. We pray for your coming. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, but until that day, find us faithful. We tremble in praying, no matter what the cost, find us faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.